Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You're listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his series, Everything Over Nothing, in the book of Ecclesiastes. I hope you enjoy. Well, good morning. Good to see you guys on a Sunday, snowy Sunday morning. This morning, this is uh, the most snow that we have ever seen in Tulsa in our entire life. And if you're anything like me and you grew up where it snows like this all the time, my, my uh, mom texted yesterday, Wisconsin got eight inches of snow uh, just overnight up there. And by the way, we're gonna be in Ecclesiastes chapter seven this morning. If you're anything like me, the best thing that you need to do, especially if you have young kids who just got their driver's license, is we own this parking lot out here, and the one that gets a little closer to uh, the barbecue shop over there, and all you're gonna do is lose control of your car and gain control. Lose control, gain control, so they can figure out how to drive in the snow. It's really not that hard. If you've got a front-wheel drive vehicle, It's the greatest. If you've got back-wheel drive because you have a truck, what you need to do is put some sandbags in there, and then you can really do some cool stuff, fishtailing and all kinds of things. This is a a really great morning this morning. I love when we can come together still with uh, just a fewer people. It just feels a little bit more intimate, and uh, it'll be a little less formal this morning. So so thank you guys for being here in the midst of the snow. And I do want to mention before we jump into Ecclesiastes, just a couple things. We've Uh, Tulsa Bible Church has submitted our safety plan to the Tulsa Health Department, which they have reviewed. They've given us feedback on it, and so we are good to keep on meeting under the new ordinance, and working with the Tulsa Health Department has just been extremely easy for us. Uh, The back and forth and the feedback that we got from them was helpful in order to have a safe environment to keep meeting with over 150 people. And so I just want to let you know that that's, that's, we're good to go all the way through the end of January here. Um, we'll see what happens with any kind of vaccines or anything like that, but, but just know that we've taken care of that and everything is in place that needs to be in place right now. Also, our, our verse that we are praying through as a church today is it comes from Psalm 138, verse 8. Psalm 138 only has eight verses in it, and it talks about that God will complete the purpose that he has for our lives individually. Uh, So this morning we are praising God as a church together that he is working in and through our lives in a way like only he can because he is in control, uh, fulfilling his purposes through us and for us as well. All right, have you found Ecclesiastes chapter seven? Again, a very chipper, chipper sermon this morning in the snow and in the cold, right? Why don't you, now that you've found your seats, let's everybody stand up together, and I want to read this passage and stand in honor and respect for God's word. Starting in verse 15, we're going to go through Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through the end of the chapter. Solomon here writes, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that without... Not withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God 
shall come out of both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and does not sin. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find out? Verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. All right, Ecclesiastes 7, let's pray while you remain standing. Father in heaven, uh, we love you and we worship you this morning for you are a good, righteous, and holy God. At Christmas time, our hearts um, pay special attention to your grace and kindness to us. Um, you didn't stay away from us. You didn't stay above us. You came down and you met us in our sinful plight through Jesus. God, we are thankful this morning uh, for the miracle of the incarnation. We pray that our hearts would be bent toward that. Lord, I pray especially for TBC that in a, um, a nation and a time when consumerism and materialism drives this time of year, that you would keep our hearts from falling into the sinful patterns of, of forgetting you at Christmas time. Help you to be the, the, um, the foremost thought and the priority in our hearts and in our families this season. Let our lives be uh, exemplified by the grace of the incarnation and the mercy that you've shown us in our relationships with other people. As we look into your word, God, we just ask that you'd uh, keep our hearts attentive and our minds open to truth. As we think on the, the hard things in this text, we pray that you would convict us where we need conviction, encourage us where we need encouragement, or that we would be different people after our time together than we were when we came in this morning. And I pray especially for our, our church family here and in a time that is, is typically marked just by generosity and, and kindness from our church family, that that would continue um, to be manifested here at TBC, that we would look out for other people's interests rather than our own, that we would be a giving church as, as you have given of yourself to us. Lord, um, help the, uh, the truth of the incarnation, the great themes of salvation and joy and peace Fill our hearts with gladness this Christmas season. Thank you for the time that we have to be together and to worship you. We ask that you would receive all the glory and all the honor this morning. It's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. When, oh yeah, Children's children's Church, thank you guys. We are having Children's Church this morning, so so kids, if you want to fly down to the Children's Church area, you're more than welcome to do so. I bet you if you go down there this morning, you'll probably get all kinds of candy and great stuff. There are only going to be a handful. Here comes some from the, from the balcony down there. 
Wade, that doesn't mean you. You need to stay up there. You don't get candy like the rest of the kids, all right? I need you to sit, sit back down, open your Bible to Ecclesiastes, friend, and you, it'll be fine. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, this is, by the way, just be careful when you're leaving today. Wet snow is the best kind of snow for snowballs and for making snowmen. So the other thing I was told this morning is, and you guys will, will probably appreciate this, there goes the shackers and some of these guys. Guys, take it easy. Long time no see, Sterling. Man. Um, the, uh, if you go out and you need Christmas, Christmas pictures with your family, the, the courtyard out there right now is just a really great place to take some photos with some snow on the trees. So I wanna encourage you to do that. If some of the kids nail you with a snowball in mid-photo, let me know about it, and I'll come and wrestle them. And we do, we do lots of things with snow that, that's helpful for kids on Sunday morning, all right? It, is, it would be a really good shot for a Christmas photo. This is uh, not my idea, just relating the message to you. Ecclesiastes 7, very interesting passage. This is all about, in my opinion, how I'm going to organize the content here is self-awareness. And as a Christian, how we can be more self-aware so that we can reflect the glory of Christ, his gentleness and his compassion, his kindness to those who need the truth the most. Uh, When John Calvin began, began his famous Institutes of Christian Religion, he wanted his readers to gain a knowledge of God. And he began in his opening chapter by saying, that God knowledge is inherently connected to self-knowledge. In other words, if you gain a deeper understanding of God, inevitably it will lead to a deeper understanding of yourself and who you are. And he said this, I think this is good. He said, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. For such, for such is our innate pride, we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Calvin believed that if people truly knew themselves, they would be driven to God. And vice versa, if they truly knew God, they would be driven back to themselves and understand their desperate need for God and their need ultimately for salvation. In other words, Calvin believed that self-awareness is a byproduct of God-awareness. Self-awareness is a byproduct of God-awareness. And self-awareness is on hard times, especially for modern people. If it's true that self-awareness is a byproduct of God-awareness, then it's also true that only those who truly know God can truly know themselves, right? And so I think all of us have been in these awkward situations where you can tell that people just don't really understand how they're coming across to another person, right? And it's painfully awkward at times. Uh, have you ever had a supervisor that was, that was just a really strong, driving, what I would call like a bulldozer type personality? Bulldozers love to get stuff done. They operate at a high, high level. They seem to have energy that is beyond anybody else's imagination. 
and to carry things out and to get stuff done. The problem is, is that bulldozers can often drive over a lot of people in the process. If they had a little bit of a, a self-awareness, they could say, wow, this is, this is kind of my tendency to do this. And so we're, we study self-awareness according to scripture because those who lack self-awareness won't realize what they're doing in, in some of their relationships with other people, right? Or, or somebody might be a, kind of a, a pawn personality. All of us have met people that, that seem to not be able to really think for themselves, make decisions for themselves. And so a lot of yes men and, and people that just roll over basically do what everybody wants them to do. They just do it without even thinking about it. And so we study self-awareness so that people can grow in that understanding and not be controlled and manipulated by others so easily. And this is a, a Christian task for all of us to think about it. In, in seminary, when I was at Dallas Seminary, we had a, uh, a fast track to self-awareness through a class called Preaching 101. And when every student took Preaching 101, here's what you were gonna do. You were gonna sit before a classroom of about 20 students and a professor, and most of all, for the key aspect of self-awareness, you were gonna sit in front of a camera and give two sermons. And the assignment from the professor was to, to record your sermon, go back home, evaluate yourself and how you see yourself on camera. It was one of the most terrifying things. It was, it was a horrible thing that you had to do in seminary. And what was amazing is that when everybody gained a little self-awareness, what they look like when they teach and what they sound like, they also developed a lot more compassion and gentleness toward other preachers who do this on a weekly basis, just seeing how hard it is to communicate effectively and to come across how you want to come across in communicating the gospel. Jared Wilson's a, a professor at Midwestern Seminary in Kansas City, and he has a podcast entitled Pastoring and Self-Awareness. And he asked this vital question. He said, how do we come aware of the ways our presence affects others? Have you ever thought about that? Just by being around Don Dunn this morning, his presence is gonna affect me, it's gonna affect a lot of you. And how is that presence going to affect other people? All of us really need to slow down and, and think about that, and, and so here's what he said during the podcast. Every maturing Christian ought to ask him or herself, what is the emotional and spiritual impact that you have on others by simply being in their presence? Do you encourage them when you know they need encouragement? Do you know how you are being reflected and how you are coming across as an ambassador of Christ in that situation? To a hurting person, do you come across as, as sympathetic, compassionate, and caring? To somebody who needs to be uh, encouraged and, up, and uplifted, do you come across as somebody who's joyful and wanting to motivate them to live life in, in a different aspect because of the gospel? So I'm going to give a, a great question of self-awareness to ask during lunch today. Steve, Chirac, this is my, my question for you and Colleen. I want you to go home. Everybody have, probably going to have lunch with your spouse and just ask this question. Ask What's it like to be married to me? I'll be open for counseling all week this week after the answers are given to that question. 
Have, have you ever thought about just, how do I really come across as a husband, as a father, as a grandfather? Some of us live like an absent-minded professor. We're so oblivious to our context, to the people around us that, that we can't even communicate effectively. The disciples were largely a group that lacked self-awareness. Jesus, nobody, if anybody else denies you, it's not gonna be me, I will never deny you. Listen, Peter, let me, let me just walk you through this before the sun rises, you're gonna deny me three times. Jesus, this is so great on the Mount of Transfiguration, let's, let's make a bunch of tents. I'll build one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, it's gonna be awesome. Bro, you just, you don't get this, <laughs> okay? Let me, let me walk you through this. Um, self-awareness. In Ecclesiastes, is Solomon is pursuing meaning in life, and he's digging deeper, and he's trying to give us life principles. Today's life principle is, is to develop some self-awareness. And so let's talk about that in Scripture. We're in the next major section of a, of a sermon series through Ecclesiastes. I've entitled this, Nothing and Everything. And this whole, whole book of Ecclesiastes is somewhat of a paradox. For the Christian, being nothing compared to God actually leads to everything. And giving away everything leads to nothing, which is still pleasing to God. There's paradoxes all over the place. Solomon has just finished his first two major sections of this book where he was dedicated to pursuing a quest of, of life's meaning, a personal quest for him and another quest to figure out just what is the meaning of life? What is this all about? Now, from chapter 6, verse 10, all the way through chapter 12, verse 7, we're going to see just life lessons from the preacher. Kohelet is going to give us lesson after lesson. The first of his life's lesson is, is that life was not fair. Life is not fair. And we said that everybody over the age of 40 or 45 probably has learned that lesson multiple times over. It's not fair. And guess what? As a Christian, we don't want fairness. We never plead for fairness from God. As a Christian, our stance is to ask for what? Mercy. That's right, John. And grace from God. Yeah, life is not fair. We live in a fallen world. Things happen all the time that shouldn't happen, but as a Christian, we plead desperately for the mercy of God. We don't ask for fairness in this life. The second life lesson that we're gonna get is, is lesson number two, and that is to develop some self-awareness. We can grow in self-awareness if we can learn three things, if we can know three things. And so these are the three things that I want to work through in the text of Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29 today. Know our painful limitations. In order to develop some self-awareness, number one, Solomon's going to ask us to know our painful limitations. Number two, to know and to understand our prideful hearts. And then finally, number three, our powerful desires. Number one this morning and number one in your outlines. In order to develop a keen sense of our self-awareness, Know your painful limitations. Now, verse 15 that we read for you just a little bit earlier picks up right where Solomon left off last week saying that life is not fair. Let me go back and read verse 15. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life 
in evil doing. Life is not fair. Wicked people live long lives, righteous people die way too young. The good die young, the evil live long. Life is not fair. But in order to understand this, you really have to understand Solomon in the context of the wisdom teachers of his day, right? One of the major aspects of wisdom teaching in the ancient Near East is something called the retributive principle, retribution principle, that if you are a good person and if you live before God in a good way, he will bless you with prosperity and long life. If you are wicked or if you are an evil person, you will experience an early death and you will experience adversity. Biblically, it's called the principle of retribution. And many, many systems of belief taught that. It's not very different than karma. Do good unto others and good things will ultimately happen to you. God rewards the righteous with with long life and prosperity, but the wicked with death and adversity. And very matter-of-factly here, Solomon just comes out and he says, listen, good people suffer. Evil people prosper. And as a result, because of that, we are left with this this painful and and attention in paradox that we read about in verses 16 and 17. He says, verse 16, do not be overly righteous. Verse 17, but do not be overly righteous wicked either. God doesn't operate strictly on retribution. What goes around doesn't always come around in God's agenda of a fallen world. But there's something, something deeper that's going on here, and, and we, can, we can surface the deeper meaning of the text here by just asking the simple question of why, all right? In anything that you do in life, take that next step and ask the question why. So, Uh, When I was a high schooler, I went off to Mississippi State University. Uh, Why did I do that? Because I wanted to enter into a a lucrative golf career, to play golf, to become the best at what I did. Mississippi State University had the best program out there. I graduated in four years. Why did I graduate in four years? Because I wanted my parents to be happy and continue paying for my tuition. Why did, I, why did I care about graduating in four years with good grades? Because good grades meant that I was going to get, a, hopefully, a better job. Why did I want a better job? Because if I got a better job, I could make more money. And at the end of this domino effect of just asking why, 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 I get down to the heart, to my selfish motivations and decisions that ended with a lifestyle that would allow me to be more selfishly ambitious with my desires and my wants. If it's true that righteous behavior always leads to blessing, people would follow God, not for God, but for God's blessings instead. Selfish motivations are always surfaced by asking the deeper questions of why. And so here's what Solomon is doing here with this paradox. He's getting to the heart. He's getting to the heart of all of us. A self-righteous person finds God useful. A true believer finds God beautiful through a deeper relationship with him. A self-righteous person wants God for God's things. A Christian wants God for God alone and for that deep relationship that they can have with him. At the end of it all, verse 18 kind of just gives us this conclusion. Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. Fear God. Fear God in your lifestyle and in your choices. 
Don't be motivated by a selfish ambition, but be motivated by a deep fear of who the Lord is and a desire to please him because he is God and to have that relationship with him. Self-awareness is, uh, is a reminder of our painful limitations. We are not in control. We cannot manipulate God into give us, giving us his blessings because sometimes that doesn't work in a fallen world. Instead, we fear God at all times, no matter what's happening. We fear God. Number two, in your outline, self-awareness, know your painful limitations, number one. But number two is to know your prideful heart. Uh, look down at verses 19 through 24. Now, now listen, Solomon, is, is, he's just going to go deeper and deeper into our hearts and into our motivations. And immediately what he does in these verses is he goes right for the jugular, Okay. Um, the, the best way I can describe this is, you know, we're, we're around the holiday seasons. A lot of us are having extra time with families during Thanksgiving and during Christmas, and, and we're taking little breaks from work, and we're doing things that we normally don't do during the year, right? And I, if you're anything like me during the holidays, what you end up doing is you end up spending time with your family that you might not typically spend with parents, with grandparents, with aunts and uncles, Right? Whenever, whenever we as a family gather around our extended family, we never know what's going to happen. We never know what the conversations are going to be like. We never know who's going to be in a good mood or who's going to be in a bad mood. And, and it's just, sometimes it's shocking. It shouldn't amaze us what happens in, in these contexts. But again, maybe I'm the only one. But do you ever, uh, do you ever see the, the struggles, for instance, like your, your parents? You have holiday times with your parents and conversations and, and you can see their weaknesses and even the sins that they struggle with and it's just glaring to you. Like, mom, dad, why are you like this? Like, why did you just say that? You realize how this, this came across? Or you've got grandkids and you, you see them doing something and, and you're kind of like, why in the world would they ever do that? But then God gives you kind of this, this prick in your conscience, right? And he takes you back to the time when you were their age and you did the exact same things that they did <laughs> or they were doing when you were young, right? And all of a sudden we, we, get this, uh, we get this mirror that reflects our own hearts and our own lives. How can, how can my dad not see this in his life? I can see it clearly. And then all of a sudden I look in the mirror, oh my goodness, I do the exact same thing that I've just seen for my parents. I do the exact same thing that I'm seeing for my kids. This is, there's this passage in the, in the Gospels where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. The Pharisees come up to Jesus and they say something to the effect of, what's up with your disciples? Why are they such pagans, they don't even wash their hands before they eat. You remember what Jesus says to him? Jesus kind of comes back and he says, hold on a second. It's not what goes into the mouth and out through the stomach that defiles a person. It's what comes out through the heart and through the mouth that defiles a person. You think my disciples are defiled and unclean because if they don't wash before they eat? Let's take a look at your heart for a second. Because from within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, immorality, adultery, and all these things that he goes on to list, slander. 
Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. With your mouth you honor me, but your heart is far from me. Here's, here's, where, here's where we're going to start with self-righteousness, and here's where we're going to start by examining all of our hearts. I want you to look down at verse 20. This is a great verse for sharing the gospel with somebody. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. All right, here's what Solomon is saying to us. If you want to be a a self-aware person and you see somebody else struggling with a sin, before you say anything, before you come down as judgmental toward that person, I want you to look into your own heart. I want you to do a thorough self-examination. Are you perfect? Do you have sin that resides deep within you? Do you, in fact, do this very same thing that you are calling out another person for doing? First, let's thoroughly examine our own hearts and let's look inside before we look outside and start judging everybody else. Because guess what? There is not a righteous man on the earth who only and continually does good and does not sin. The only person that that was possible for was Jesus himself. And he was crucified on a cross for us. But then he gives us this additional example of hypocrisy. Right? Look down at verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. People are going to say things that they should not say against you. Guess what? You've said a lot of things that you should have not said against other people too. So again, check your heart. Be careful of becoming a certified fruit inspector where all we do is look out at other people's lives and and see the deficiencies in their character and we fail to examine our own hearts and see the deficiencies that are there that we've got to deal with. If we're going to be self-aware people, it's going to start with a lot of humility and it's going to lead to a lot of gentleness and compassion dealing with other people who are struggling with sin, right? Because all of us are going to look inside and say, we're not that great. We're not. Compared to the one standard that we have to compare ourselves, all of us are going to fall short of the perfection and the holiness of God. Right? So, so let's gain some self-awareness that starts with the reality of the sins that we struggle with in our own hearts. And here's what's going to happen as an overflow of that. A self-aware person, you, you know them when you meet them. They tend to be very soft-spoken people. They tend to be very gentle with others. And instead of saying something harsh, they know how to speak truth in love in a way that's self-deprecating. Listen, I've been there before. I struggle with the same things that you struggle with. Let's walk through life together. Let's do this, because it's hard. All of us face sin in our own hearts. One commentator says this about the phrase, your heart knows. Look at that, verse 22. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed other. One commentator says the phrase, your heart knows, is an idiom for what would later be called the conscience. I love that. The readers know that deep inside they behave this way too. And so let's reflect to ourselves before we look to judge others on the outside. Self-awareness, number one, know your painful limitations. 
Number two, self-awareness teaches us all to check our hearts. Check our hearts before we check others. Number three, self-awareness teaches us to know your powerful desires. Know your desires. Know your weaknesses. Know your tendencies. Know the things that you struggle with and fight against those things. Verse 25 begins with a list of infinitives that describe the diligence of Solomon's search, the preacher's search for meaning. Verse 25, look down, it says, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. All of these verbs describe the diligence in Solomon's search. Verse 26 adds another infinitive to find. And so we are seeking and we are finding. We are seeking and we are finding through the meaning of life, Solomon's life lessons. The preacher examines himself and he examines the world deeply. But verse 25 also introduces us to a brand new phrase. It says, I turn my heart to seek, to know, and to search out, and to seek wisdom. And the scheme of things, if you highlight or you underline in your Bible, you might pay special attention to the phrase, the scheme of things. You're going to see that again in verse 27. You also see that at the end of this passage in verse 29. King James, instead of saying the scheme of things, it says the reason of things. The Christian Standard Bible says the explanation of things. One translation says the sum of things. This is a phrase that denotes the explanation that stands behind the world. Solomon is, is looking to find a meaning or an explanation for everything that happens in life and how to process it and to make sense of it. By the way, the preacher never finds the scheme of things. He never finds the expl explanation that stands behind the world. That's why he's, he's always saying life is meaningless. It just doesn't make any sense to him. However, he does find out many other things in life things that will help us with our self-awareness. So look down at, at verse 26. Here's what he finds. I find something more bitter than death, a woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Now the woman's heart here is described metaphorically as a snare and as a net. It's actually in the uh, singular there in the Hebrew. We should be picturing a trap. In Proverbs, wisdom literature uses this over in an abundance throughout its writings. Proverbs 7, verse 21 through 23, you might just make a special mention of this verse. With much seductive speech, she persuades him, Proverbs 7 says. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast until an arrow pierces its liver. And as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. The second thing Solomon says about um, a seductive woman is that her hands are like fetters depicting chains. And, and all that's happening in this passage is you're getting image after image, metaphor after metaphor, to describe what sin really is. Solomon's giving a, us a definition of sin. He's defining sin. And he's saying that sin is craving something more than God. Anything that you pursue as more important to God is in fact sinful. If God is in the peripheral or if he is in the margins of your life, that in essence is what it is to sin and to pursue sin. 
And all sin, all of us know that all sin has a tolerance effect to it. The more we sin, the more we, we need or we feel like we have to have sin. The, if it takes one aspect to get gratification today, it's going to take a double aspect of get, to get the same gratification tomorrow. And, and sin is so subtle, but before long, you find yourself chained to your desires. Sin, Solomon is saying here that sin is slavery. The very act of sin that promises to give you freedom is in fact taking away your freedom. The very act that you feel like is putting you in the driver's seat of your life is actually taking you out of the driver's seat of your life. Why? Because sin is slavery. Sin is bondage. Sin traps you and it snares you. It gives you the impression that it is leading to somewhere and its only path is to death and its only path is ultimately to destruction. Solomon concludes in, in verse 29. He says, See this alone I have found that God has made men upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And, and you can't help but read images of, of Genesis chapter 6, of Genesis chapter 3 when we read this. God has, has created man as good, but we have sought out many devices. We have sought out our enjoyment and our pleasure in sinful things rather than in what God created us to enjoy in him forever. Solomon searched diligently. Listen, listen to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness was on the earth and how great it had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Right, so we can specifically apply this to men in a, in a seductive woman, but we can very generally apply this to sin, everybody's sin, and how it entices us, entraps us, and snares us with longings and desires that are not pleasing to God. We think they're going to fulfill and satisfy us, but they never ultimately satisfy. Solomon searched diligently for wisdom and meaning in life, and he had no major breakthroughs. All that he found was that humanity is evil, it seeks out evil, and its thoughts are evil continually in their mind. Snowy, nice snowy, cold day. Hope you're encouraged from Ecclesiastes. Number one, let's apply this. Let's, let's, let's draw Ecclesiastes to the truth of the gospel. Where does this passage in Ecclesiastes 7 lead us to grace and mercy? Where does this lead us to the person of Christ? The first thing I want to say is, is what we just started out with. Self-knowledge is impossible without God-knowledge. Number one, I, I think when we examine ourselves and we pursue self-awareness, the conclusion we have to come to is the same conclusion that Calvin came to, and that is self-knowledge, understanding who we are, is impossible without understanding who God is in God-knowledge. Calvin said, no one ever attains to a clear knowledge of self unless he has first gazed upon the face of the Lord. You will never know who you truly are until you know who God truly is. And so listen, this is just a good illustration. In our marriages, good marriages don't begin by knowing your spouses. Good marriages begin by knowing God and knowing the truth of the gospel. And then you can know your spouse for who they truly are under the umbrella of God's character and who he created them to ultimately be and us to ultimately be. At a very basic level, people don't see things the way that we see them. 
Understand when you examine yourself and try to increase in your self-awareness, people don't see things the way that you see them. And so give some time to think about how you are coming across and, and who you are in light of the gospel and the truth of who God is. John 15 is, is one of the best passages on self-awareness. We abide in Christ, and Christ abides in us, so that our joy may be made full. Listen to 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Even the Apostle Paul encourages us to watch out, to engage in some self-awareness and to watch ourselves with clear teaching and clear doctrine and a lifestyle that exhibits healthy doctrine. How can we gain self-awareness? Ask yourself and ask others. Am I exhibiting the fruits of the Holy Spirit in my life? Through the decisions that I make on a daily basis, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, are those things being reflected not only to me in the mirror, but also to the others who are around me? A self-aware person is also one who, by the Holy Spirit, can be used to live out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And there is only one fruit. It has nine flavors. So we should have all of those characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. We pursue those things through a self-awareness. Where am I falling short? God, help me to grow in my gentleness. Help me to grow in my self-control. Help me to grow my love and my joy before other people. Self-knowledge is impossible without God-knowledge. But if we can increase in that, we can exhibit the fruits of the Spirit in a better and a stronger way. Number two, our true self is not found inside of us. It is found outside of us. Please understand this because the world is going to tell you the exact opposite. Our true self is not found by digging deep within, trying to find something good that resides in there. Our true self is not found looking in. It is found looking out. It is not found by focusing on ourself at all. It is found by focusing on our Savior, who is Christ. And when we do find him, then we can begin to discover who we truly are. Lewis said this, he said, the more we can now call ourselves and get ourselves out of the way and let God take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. There is no use trying to be yourself without God. It does not exist as a principle in the scriptures at all. Here's what Lewis says, and I think this is so good. He says, the more I resist God and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and natural desires. In fact, he says, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and can never stop. What I call my wishes become merely the desires pumped into me by other men's thoughts or even suggested to me by the devils. We don't know what we really want until we can see ourselves for who Christ created us to be. We don't really have a perfect will before God until we can see God's will laid out before us and how it leads us to the person of Christ. It's when we turn to Christ, when we give up ourselves, 
When we give up our personalities, we first begin to have a true personality, one that is grounded and caught up in the personality of Christ, in the perfect image of God. Our first self, our, our first step to a real self is to abandon self altogether, is to die to self, it's to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to walk daily under the truth of the gospel and who Jesus is. If you look to yourself, in the long run, you will only find loneliness, despair, hopelessness, and unfulfilled desires. But if you look to Christ, you will find him and everything else included. This is the message of Ecclesiastes. This is what it means to grow in self-awareness. Lesson number two in life. Develop some self-awareness. And that self-awareness starts with the truth of the gospel and how desperately we need Jesus to become who he created us to be. Apart from Christ, there is no self. With Christ, ourselves, we can finally truly, truly become. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, um, we are so tempted to think of self-awareness in terms of self-esteem, self-gratification, self-interest, self-ambition. The world tells us that if we, if we want to live a, a truly fulfilling life that we need to look within ourselves. Father, I, pr I pray that with everybody here as we read through these passages and in Ecclesiastes and deal with the realities of life and learning life lessons that all of us can take a, a 30,000 foot view of our life. We can look down. We can see how we are coming across to other people. We can see the areas that we really need to grow in. Not under our own power and our own abilities, but because of the Holy Spirit that you've given us. Lord, as, as we increase and we examine ourselves Give us the ability to walk in the truth of who you've created us to be. Help us to live out the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Give us an awareness to be more joyful and loving and kind and gentle with other people. Give us a compassion for the lost because we look at our hearts and we know that we ourselves struggle to be good and to be righteous all the time. Lord, help us to find our, our greatest joy and satisfaction ultimately in the truth of the gospel and in the person of Christ. Help him to inform our self-awareness more than anything or anybody else. And that our lives might be a reflection of the Holy Spirit working deeply on all of our hearts. Father, we pray this to you through the Son and by the Spirit, for you three are the one true God, and there is no God besides you. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys again for being here, um, and please be safe as you leave. Really, uh, if you do want to work on losing control and gaining control, just wait till all the cars are out of the parking lot so we can do that kind of stuff. But it is a lesson that you need to learn if you're going to drive a vehicle in the snow. It's possible to do these things in Tulsa. Uh, it's a weird-looking stuff. Man, I think I see about, I'm going to say there's about four inches. 
three and a half to four inches going on out there. So enjoy it. Take some pictures out in the courtyard. Uh, send those to your friends that you did, in fact, get your super Christian award and your super Christian t-shirt for showing up to church today. It's a joy to always see you guys. Um, love you so much. And please, please enjoy the holiday season. Direct your hearts to the truth of the gospel at this time of year. All right, we'll see you next time.